Welcome to the Love First Podcast, where we are committed to biblical teaching and sharing the principles and the promises of living out our faith according to what Jesus says are the two greatest commandments, loving God with our whole being and loving others as ourselves. I hope this message encourages you and inspires you to help build your faith and deepen your relationship with God. Enjoy the message. Welcome to part two of the message, The Road, the Garden, the House, and the Room. In part one, we looked at life on the road and in the garden. If you haven't listened to that one yet, let me strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that one first. Part two may not make any sense without listening to part one first. But we left off at the end of part one when I was just opening the door to enter into the house. Let's pick up right there. But in the house, it looks like these people really do care for each other. I mean, mean, look at them. Some are rejoicing with those who rejoice, and, and some are crying with those who are crying. And at this moment, I realize that, that this is what life is about. It's not just loving God and being loved by Him. There's more. And then I see it. The sign above the door. I'm not sure how I haven't seen it before. It's very clearly put there. I don't know. Maybe it's because before now I wasn't really ready to read it. I I don't know. But I see it clearly now. And all of a sudden, as if from nowhere, like, like a surprising wind hitting me as I walk around the corner, I know that I must enter into the house. It is there that I will find what I'm looking for. And I read the sign above the door one more time as I put my hand on the doorknob. Love your neighbor. The joy of the Lord is not simply found in loving God, I realize, as I, as I take my next step to truly experience God's joy, that I have to learn to love others. So I open the door and step in. Well, almost immediately I'm surrounded by people all welcoming me. It's, it's like nothing I've ever felt before. Warmth, acceptance, perhaps even friendship. Well, it's not too long before I discover that in the house, there is love. And in this house, people are living out their purpose in life. Some are serving people, some are teaching people, some are encouraging people in various ways. But all are living out their gifts. They have found their purpose and their significance. It is not too long before I'm ready to start using my gifts, to start fulfilling my purpose, to start finding my significance. I learned so much in my time in, in the Garden of Prayer and, in the, and on the foundation of the Word that I know this is part of my purpose. So I begin to pray for some of the people whom I was drawing close to. Now, unlike people on the road, the people in their house truly appreciate the fact that someone is genuinely praying for them. I'm not just saying that I will pray for them. I am literally doing it. It, 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 it's where I find my joy. It is what I love doing. It is where I find my significance and purpose. 
So I continue. I don't stop. In fact, I do it more. I never want to stop. For a while, the life I lived on the road, the people there who, who never cared about me or cared to know me at all, they drifted away in the background of my memories. Because life here in the house is good. But then, after a while, the old thoughts that I had while walking on the road start to find its way back into my mind. At first, their their fleeting thoughts quickly put aside. Life in the house and the people in the house are so much different than the road, even different than in the garden. I can't have those thoughts of self-doubt or or insignificance here. But just like when there is a fire in the next room and, and you don't know there is a fire until the smoke crawls under the door and starts to fill your room, Well, I don't realize a fire in my own mind until it's too late. For some reason, I I find myself consumed by the flame of self-doubt and feeling that anything I do is, is likely not really appreciated by others. I fear that the relationships I formed in the house will... will No, I don't fear it. I believe it. That they are already falling away. I begin to wonder if, if anything is real or this is just a facade that the people are putting on like some did on the road or, or these people wearing masks too. Oh, to be sure, these people in the house are much better at acting out their facade if indeed they, they are acting. Now, now, they're not acting. They're real. It's me. I'm the one that doesn't belong here. I'm the one wearing the mask. I love God. I love others. But I am the one who's unlovable. And then like a boa constrictor wrapping itself around its prey, I begin to feel the, the life squeezed out of me tighter, tighter gasping for for, for anything, anyone who could give me life, give me hope, give me validation, give me love. How could things go from so good to so bad in just a snap of the finger? But it wasn't a snap. It wasn't one moment that gripped my soul. It is the constant dripping of that voice inside of me reminding me of my failures, telling me that others don't love me, that they do not appreciate me, that that even though the people in the house are so different than the ones on the road, it's going to be just like the road. When I am gone, no one will care. No one will remember me. No one will miss me. And I buy that. I believe it. I know. I've always known that I am a failure. It has always been true. It was true on the road. It was true in the garden. And I see it now. It is true in the house. And soon I am once again faced with a decision to quit. Maybe even go back to the road where at least the noise would drown out the pain inside of me. But God, those two incredible words again, but God, but, but God sends someone into the corner of this great room where I'm cowering. And she tries to tell me that the flames I feel engulfing me 
and the serpent that I feel choking me isn't real. It's my imagination. It's my fears. It's not real. I am not a failure. I have a purpose. I am significant. I don't need validation. And, and I want to believe her. And part of me does believe her. But I find that I simply cannot shake those self-doubts and feelings that have been with me since I begin to walk on the road. And they won't leave my mind. I try to ignore the pain and, and just go on doing what I've been doing. And oh, the fire does subside for a little while. The serpent relaxes its grip around me for a little while. But then every few days, the flames start heating up inside my soul and the grip of the serpent starts tightening around my heart until, until, until that one day when my friend points me to an obscure door in the room. I think maybe I've seen that door at various times in my life in the house, but nothing about it ever drew my curiosity. I mean, I've opened so many doors in that house already. I've opened the doors marked, try harder. I've opened the one marked, be all that you could be. I've opened doors marked, read more and, and pray more and, and give more and, and serve more. And I've walked through those hallways marked, the golden rule. I mean, that one was sure to give me purpose, right? Do to others what you want them to do to you. But in each of those rooms that those doors would open to, there was a large mural on the wall with identical words in each room. Vain pursuit. No door I ever opened led to that significance or that purpose that I so desperately sought. No room in itself fulfilled the need at the core of my soul, the need to love and to be loved. But then there is this one very obscure door and it has no sign. No reason for me to want to enter that room. Well, my friend slides a piece of wood away that is covering the frame of the door and tells me to read the sign engraved there, telling me that I needed to enter that room. Love your neighbor as yourself, the engraving says. Well, I know that verse. It is the second part of the verse that is in the front of the house. And then she says, I will not say more right now. You must understand it fully. I sense almost immediately that she's not going to tell me why I need to go into the room, nor is she going to give me a clue as to what's in that room. You need to go in there, she tells me, in such a way that I have no doubt that I need to do this. I mean, how bad can it be? I reason to myself, it's probably just another vain pursuit. But I trust my friend, so I believe this one may not be in vain. But I wonder what I will find. More people? Probably. Every gate or door I've opened so far has always been a new level of people experiencing the joy of the Lord. Maybe this is where I will find the next group of people. The doorknob's a bit difficult to turn, like it's rusty, but I managed to turn it anyway, hearing the rusty hinges on the door squeak as the door slowly opens. At this point, I'm not fearing what's inside. 
Everything leading up to this moment has always brought a new sense of joy. As the door slowly squeaks open, I slip inside, ready for the lights to come on and the sound of happy people to fill the room. But that's not what happens. Once I am fully inside, I hear the door slam behind me. I turn quickly to reach for the doorknob to open it, just to let a little light in. Just enough so maybe I can find the light switch. But there's no doorknob. And it's dark. Very dark. Too dark. Eerily dark. Where am I? I call out. I hear nothing. But I feel a chilling breeze blow across my body. I move towards where I think the door is, ready to bang on it, hoping someone will hear me on the other side and and open it. But then I remembered my promise to my friend that I would spend some time in this room. And I trust her. I know she knows something that I don't know. Perhaps she's been in this room before. But after a minute, I hear a crackling sound on the far wall, and I turn to see the words of fire burning into the wall. Love your neighbor as yourself. I know that. It's a verse I've always known. It's considered the second greatest commandment. I think of the people in the room behind me. I, I, I love those people. I truly do. I wouldn't be praying for them all the time if I didn't. I guess maybe my friend's wrong. I don't really need to be in this room. It's time to leave. I start to knock on the wall to, to yell out to, to anyone who might hear. Okay, I got it. I'm ready to come out. Thanks. However, before I can raise my fist to the wall to knock, my eye catches some of the glowing words starting to dissipate. Slowly, all but the first two words and the final word disappears completely, leaving a very strange and cryptic phrase on the wall. Love yourself. No, 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 this isn't right. Love yourself? Are you kidding me? I know this isn't right. Not only can I not love myself because I know, other than God's love for me, I'm truly not lovable. But I also know that I'm not supposed to love myself. I mean, there is n- that's nothing more than pride. You know, pride, the very thing that God resists. He resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. And, and so the more I love myself, the more I, I will be filled with pride. No, 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 no. Not pride in the form of arrogance, but pride in the form of, of focusing so much on myself that I, that I don't see anybody else. No. I'm misunderstanding what the words left of the wall are saying. I mean, doesn't the Bible say to consider others as more important than yourself? If I focus on loving myself and not loving other people, then I'm going against what the Word teaches? What does this mean? I scream out. I I even cry. What does this mean? And then it happens. I have what a friend of mine described as a genuine close encounter with a father. If you've ever experienced a time like that when it is just you and God and he starts softly speaking to you in in real time, then, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's as if nothing or anyone else exists. It's, it's just you and it's just God. Nothing else. No one else. 
no worries about life, about work, about relationships, about anything. Just me, just God. Now, I don't know any other way to describe it other than it was a fact that I was spiritually locked in a room with God. There in that room, God begins to show me the tapestry that has my life painted on it from my earliest memories right up until the early morning when I got that cryptic text from my friend that said, this just occurred to me and I think you need to take it seriously. Love your neighbor as yourself. I will not say more right now. You must understand it fully. And there in that room, the room I only went into because I trusted and respected my friend and had promised that I would take that exhortation seriously. You know, that room that I figured at best I would be in maybe 15 minutes, that room that after just a few minutes I, I, I wanted to run from, in that room I met with God. Just God. Just me. For over three hours. Tick, 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 one hour, two hours, three hours, and God was still going. Now, don't get me wrong, it wasn't easy, and it surely wasn't fun. Anytime you have that canvas of what you thought your life is supposed to be like in Christ ripped from the walls of your soul, it hurts. It's confusing. It's even scary. But let me tell you something. It's worth it. To hear so clearly within your very soul God talking to me. Oh, man. And as the hours went on, through the times of me asking God questions and him planting his answers into my heart, I begin to soften. I begin to see things differently. Now, I know that there's no way that I can adequately put into words what a divine encounter with God is like. I mean, I did type furiously for those three hours everything God was telling me. Pages upon pages. I don't mean just a couple of pages. 14 point double double spaced font. I mean a dozen pages, single spaced, 11 point font. God was talking to me, just me, no one else. But now when I go back and, and, and read those pages upon pages, even I realize some of it seems like a jumbled mess and, and doesn't really make any sense. But it does still still make sense in my heart. And that's what counts. Okay, so I will try to put this into words. I will try to condense three hours into it, just a few statements. And some of you will hear and say, is that all? Is that all you got? Three hours with God and, and that's all you got? I got it in two minutes. And that's okay. Like I said, I already know that there's no way that I can put into words that will adequately explain what is literally unexplainable. A close encounter in real time with God. Now, for those of you who have experienced something like that, you know what I mean. And you can't really explain it either. But I'm going to try. 
And I think what God showed me in that room is so important that it needs to be said. So, okay, in a nutshell, this is what God showed me. Let's go back into that room for just a couple minutes. That room inside the house that, that God was ripping me to shreds in. In the most loving way that only God can do. Before entering that room, I had already developed a very close relationship with God. You know that Jesus calls the greatest commandment to love the Lord with God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Boy, howdy, in many ways, I had that one down. Or so I thought. I'll get back to that in a minute. And I also knew that I had really grown in that second most important commandment. Love your neighbor. I mean, I felt like I was ministering to different people in the ways of of praying for them and, and encouraging them. I lifted others up, not just in prayer, but in words of encouragement and, and affirmation. Hey, there were days that I spent more time praying for people than I did watching TV. And you know, when you live alone, it's easy to binge watch certain things. Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Amazon Prime. Hey, I have them all. Not to mention, it was college basketball season. My favorite sport. And... Honestly, I surprised even myself when I realized that there were weeks that I spent more time praying for others and reading my Bible than I did anything else. Now, I'm not saying that to try to show you how good I am, because remember, those other doors that I opened, vanity. But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that prayer and Bible reading is vanity. Those are really good things, and those are things that are essential to our relationship with God. And it really does help me love God more and it even helps me love others more when I do that. So anyway, I had this love your neighbor thing down to a T. Or so I thought. But what I didn't have down was that last part. You know the one that says to love your neighbor as yourself? I didn't love myself. And what's worse, I didn't want to love myself. Let me, let me take it one step deeper. I truly believed I wasn't supposed to love myself. I'm not sure why I believed that, but I did. And it was ingrained in my very soul. Now, some of you I know are saying right now, What? Are you serious? You thought you weren't supposed to love yourself? What kind of stupid thought is that? But then there are probably another group of people who have been taught, and you believe, like I always had, that we already have a problem with so much self-love. So, of course, you should not do anything to love yourself more. You love yourself too much already anyway. You see, my theology taught me that I was depraved and wicked, that there was nothing good about me. And, oh, I can show you verses that would back up that belief, verses such as Romans 7.18 that says, and I know that nothing good lives in me. You know, even some of the old hymns we love to sing tell how worthless we are. You know, the original words that great hymn at the cross, it says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Okay, yes, I know these verses and these songs are talking about our pre-Christ life. But for me, that meant that there is nothing good about Steve. The only good I have in me is Christ. My personality, my abilities, my interest, bad. Christ in me, good. 
I know the truth in this. Christ in me is my hope of glory. He is the one who gives me the abilities and gifts. But for me, and get this, as strange as this might sound, I fully separated in my own mind Christ in me and me, Steve. Christ in me is significant. He has a purpose. He needs no validation. Hey, people even like the Christ in me. But what about Steve? Nope. In Steve dwells no good thing. That is what I believed. So even though I know Christ in me has validation, is appreciated, etc., Steve is not. But you know how hard it is to separate in your own mind what is of God and what is my own desire? What Christ in me has called me to do and what Steve, that person who has no good, wants me to do. So for me, this kind of thinking led to so much self-doubt. It led to the absolutely crippling need for others to validate me. Why? Because I didn't trust myself enough. I needed others to tell me that they appreciated me. I needed others to constantly tell me they believed in me, that they supported me. You see, I don't have it within myself to proclaim to even myself those immortal words of the great Saturday Night Live theologian Stuart Smalley. I could never believe the words, I am good enough, I am smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. For me, that was just not reality. Then in that room with God, I tell this to him. I mean, I really tell God how I feel. God, I'm not good enough. Yes, I know you are made strong in my weakness and that that you show your power through people. I believe that 100% for other people. Hey, I'm fully convinced that God is going to show his wonderful power and grace through some of those that I pray for on a regular basis. I do not just say that because I fully believe that. But deep down inside, though I didn't realize it until I was in that room alone with God, but deep down inside, though I believed it for other people, I did not believe it for myself. There, I say it. I say it to God. I flat out tell God in the middle of the darkness in that room that I don't believe he would truly work through me. Yes, I say that. And before I even give God a chance to respond, which, by the way, he wasn't going to interrupt me because, hey, I was on a roll. I was on a roll telling God how much I really didn't trust him. Oh, yes, God, I trust you with my finances. You've you've proven all throughout my life that you're always going to take care of me financially. I never go hungry. I'm always able to make my payments. But I don't trust you enough to know if it is you directing me in certain things or if it's me directing me. You know that pride thing, God? That thing that you resist? I don't know if it's my pride that wants something or if it's your will. So maybe it's not that I don't trust you, it's, it's, it's that I don't trust me. I don't trust me to know your will, to know what you want me to do, to know the calling you have on my life. And I was still on a roll and God was just sitting back, relaxing in his great recliner in the sky, waiting for me to finish. And you know what else, God? People don't really appreciate me. Oh, I know they act like it because they follow you and you tell them to love their neighbor. 
maybe even some consider this poor, downtrodden, kind of unlikable guy as, as their ministry, and, and they are out to fix me. Not love me, just fix me. Or worse yet, God, I bet some of them even consider that I might just be the cross they have to bear in life. No one really wants to be my friend. I mean, I mean, not really, not fully, not deeply. And you know what else, God? I keep my role flowing. God just keeps listening. And you know what else, God? I don't blame them. Slowly, I could see God shaking his head. Not out of frustration, but out of pure and utter love for me. I can't explain how in that moment, I feel God's loving eyes looking into my soul as he says to me, My son, you have no idea the plans I have to use you. You have no idea how many lives you are going to impact if you will only trust me. Now, I do start to protest, thinking I won't impact any lives if people don't respond to me because they don't accept me or like me or appreciate me. But this time, God stops me before I can say a word. My son, people do like you. They do respect you. They even love you. But the problem is that you don't respect or love yourself the way that they do. The way that I do. You seek from others validation when all you need is my validation. You seek from others their approval when you already have my approval. You want others to give you significance when you have been given significance in me and by me. You ask for others something that they, they cannot give you. Only I can give you that. It's not for them to give you. It's something I give you. The truth is when you look at all these things from other people, or you want all these things from other people, it's not fair to them. They may even want to give it, but they know they can't. It's not within a human to give. This is only a divine thing. So my mind begins to quieten. It's beginning to make sense. All these years I have searched for, I've longed for, I've even felt that I needed the validation of others before I could be what God wants me to be, to do what he wants me to do. Because I couldn't give that to myself. I couldn't even accept myself. And it is such a liberating thought to know that not only will I not get it from others, but I won't get it from them because it is something they simply cannot give. It's liberating to know that others are not rejecting me because they don't truly like me. But they like me. They appreciate me. But they are just forced to fall away because they simply cannot do what they know I think that they should give me. As my encounter with God continues, he begins to lead me to a deeper understanding of those simple passages about the two greatest commandments. You know, it says you must love the Lord with God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. You see, until now, I've always looked at these verses as a hierarchy. One, love God. Two, love others. 
And three, since entering that room with God, I saw a third level of that hierarchy. Love yourself. The passage says that everything is summed up in these two commands. In that room, God shows me that this is not a hierarchy that is listed as step one. After you do step one, you go to step two. And and then you finally get to the least important one, that third step. It's not like that at all. One actually feeds off the one that comes after. Now let me put it this way. We already know the teaching of Christ when he says things like, when you have done it to the least of these, you've done it for me. We see him say that others will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, and Peter says yes, so Jesus tells him to feed his sheep, to love and take care of his people. In that room, in the most audible way that I can hear God speak without actually hearing anything through my ears, God reminds me that I cannot truly love him with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind if I don't truly demonstrate love for other people. Well, I already kind of understood that. I guess you could say it was a reverse hierarchy. Love others first so that I can truly love God. But then in my heart of hearts, my very soul, I also see that I cannot truly demonstrate love to others unless I understand love inside of myself. Yes, unless I love myself. So in this room, I ask God, how can I love myself without it morphing into a self-love that, that thinks of myself as more important than other people? After all, I believe in the verse that says to consider others as more important, or in some translations say, as better than myself. And in that quiet, still, loving, reassuring voice that only God can speak with, he tells me I've been misreading the passage all my life. It does not say that I am supposed to think of myself as unimportant. I can still consider others as more important and still hold on to the fact that I too am important. The verse does not imply that by considering others as better than myself that I'm not important. And then God asked me that rhetorical question. Who lives inside you, kid? Who gives you salvation? I mean, I know you love me, kid, he continues. And I want you to love what I have put inside you. It is Christ in you. You must love the Christ in you. That is your hope of glory. That is where you will find significance, purpose, love. And then before I leave the room, God asked me a very simple question. Do you trust me, kid? Well, well, yes, of course. Well, for so long you have trusted me with others. Now it's time for you to trust me with yourself. And with that, he sends me out of the room. I am to think of myself and love myself the way the Father loves me. I am to go back into that house and love the people the way I I now know how to love. It is a deeper love than I've, I've ever shown before. And as a result, I learned to love God even deeper than ever before. I, I'm to go back into the garden and, and the, the patio and, and show the love that is inside me. 
Not a love that I am able to manufacture on my own. Not a love fabricated by a mask. But God's love. Show them God's love. And yes, I'm to even go to the people back on the road. Those people who are either stubbornly or perhaps unknowingly wearing the mask of self-righteousness or the mask that portrays that everything is fine, life is good, when it really isn't. Show those people how to find the garden and the house and eventually the room. I can now do this because I'm learning. Well, I'm not done learning. I'm still learning. I'm learning how to love first what God has put in me. And that love enables me to love first other people. And that love enables me to love first the Father. Did you catch the way I said that? Every one of those three, love God, love others, love yourself, I said they were all love first. They work together. They are interdependent on each other. I simply cannot have one without the other two. You see, here's the simple truth of the matter. And, well, no, it's not simple. The truth is simple. But really taking hold of it, believing it to the point where, where I no longer am living with a need to gain the approval of others, now that's not so easy. The truth is that Steve without Christ really isn't very good. Steve without Christ is unworthy of God's love, much less anyone else's. Steve without Christ is a sinner. He is despicable and rotten. And and you know what else? Steve isn't the only one. Each of you without Christ, well, there's nothing redeemable about you. Without Christ living through us, we have to wear a mask. We have to. Trying to convince everyone around us that, that we're okay. The problem is that even once we come to Christ, we still have a tendency to want to wear that mask. We still so often believe that even though we now have Christ, there is still nothing good about us. And the sad thing is, the the really sad thing is, that so often other Christians keep reminding us that we aren't living up to that standard. Preachers preach from the pulpit in in ways to guilt us into believing that we're not good enough because we don't live up to the standard. It happens so much that our already fragile psyche is is broken even more and, and we are crippled in a way that we cannot truly live that victorious Christian life. Oh, we try. You know, if only I try harder to do the right thing. If only I try harder not to commit this certain sin. God, I I promise I'll I'll fix this. I'll do better. But that only leads to more failure because we don't have what it takes to win. I, Steve, cannot live the victorious life. I, Steve, cannot live to the standard of Christ. I, Steve, see myself as a sinner. Oh yes, I'm going to heaven because I put my faith in in the shed blood of Christ. But inside I see myself as a sinner saved by grace. A sinner saved by grace. Oh now that sounds so good and godly, doesn't it? I mean, that's who I am, right? I am just a sinner saved by grace. But where is the personal focus on that phrase? It's on me. What am I? I'm a sinner. That is where the focus 
on me is. Yes, God comes into focus because he saved me by his grace, but in this phrase, I see myself as a sinner. But, but what happens when I change my focus from being a sinner to the truth that Christ is in me? Christ in me. Christ in Steve. Instead of seeing myself as a sinner saved by grace, I see myself as a saint, fully loved and accepted by God, who sometimes sins. And even when I do something that disappoints or even befuddles others, I am still Christ in Steve. Because I am no longer a sinner. I am a saint of God. I just sin sometimes, or maybe lots of times. So as I emerge from the room and I see the crowds of people in there all still standing where they've always done, helping people, serving people, worshiping, praying for one another, I'm engulfed by the realization of how deep the Father's love for me is. I am no longer held hostage by self-doubt. I now, thanks to my friend's text, because of Christ in me, I can now confidently say the immortal words of Saturday Night Live Stuart Smalley, you know, those words I could never say before, and, and it's only because of Christ in me that I can say, I'm good enough. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the fruit of the Spirit that you're developing in my life. I'm smart enough. Thank you, Father, for giving me insights into your word. And doggone it, thank you, Jesus, for living through me, for being Christ in me, people like me. And if they don't, oh well, Christ loves me. Anytime I start to feel those old feelings, which I know will happen from time to time, he is going to be there to wrap his loving arms around me and remind me that he's crazy about me. He loves me with an everlasting love that isn't going to change. He's got me. But my hope and prayer is that each of you will one day come to that close encounter with God in real time. It can't help but give you a new perspective on so many areas of your life. I know it has for me, and, and I know it has for others. Thank you, and may you too one day soon discover how deep the Father's love is for you. Hi, this is Steve Bittison. If you enjoyed this podcast, or if God blessed you or taught you anything in it, I hope that you will subscribe to the Love First podcast and share it with your friends. That way you won't miss any of the upcoming teachings and messages and maybe you will help be a blessing to someone else.